shooting is creating and you're trying to keep that space safe and you're trying to nurture it and you're trying to believe in this thing that probably won't work and shouldn't but maybe it could if you just keep giving it your attention. I mean, the idea of creating, it's almost like when we make something, it doesn't even come from us. It comes from above. I mean, I feel like that that's a concept that we can all kind of relate to. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And John Casby, who said that and who we have on Rough Cut today, there were so many moments like that in this interview where he was just so vulnerable and open with his process and, you know, his own doubts and his own relationship with his work while he's creating it after it's finished and yeah it was a fantastic conversation Mm. that's so honorable in a way because I feel like especially in this world today we so often try to put up a front that you know everything's going so well all of my projects are going so well I'm happy all of the time when really you know as creators we are struggling so much because it's hard you know and and that's it's so great that he did that. Yeah, I mean, the creative process is literally a struggle. That's the nature of it all the time. And anyone who says anything different is lying. Absolutely. That's not to say that John is struggling because he's actually doing quite well. Mm. He just finished his first feature length documentary. It's called When Lambs Become Lions. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. It's It's shot like a fiction feature movie but it's a documentary it just screened at Tribeca and and others I think it's in the in the festival doing the festival circuit yeah yeah and so what's the film about um the film is set in Kenya and it follows a wildlife ranger and an ivory dealer I didn't know this but in Kenya it's so illegal to poach elephants that you can be killed by a government ranger for it if you're caught doing it yeah. and so it Good follows thing, i think yeah it follows two main characters one of them is a is with the poachers and one of them is is with the government and you find out later that no spoiler alert but that they're cousins and it's just mm. really interesting story and he spent years there and he built these beautiful relationships with these people and no one else who just dropped it in Kenya would have been able to do this film. So he really dedicated everything to it. That's amazing. I mean, the idea of John is based in New York, right? And and the idea yeah. of working on something for four years in general is, I think, a foreign concept to a lot of people. And also goes back to his that initial quote where you don't know if this thing is going to work out. It might. But what if it doesn't? Was this all for naught? But then it magically does come together. I mean, um, the the idea of going back and forth between New York and Kenya for four years yeah. is um, a pretty crazy thing, huh? Yeah, and we, we go into that. Oh, man. Well, I can't wait to hear it. Wait, Jenny, before we go into the interview, should we, who, should we introduce ourselves? We probably should. We probably should, yeah. Um, I'm Jenny Butler. And I'm Sky Dylan Robbins. And uh, this is John Casby. Here we go. John? Thank you for being on Rough Cut. Thanks for having me. What was your first gig in the filmmaking world? Did you go to film school? No. I went to school and it had a media production major, but it was mostly athletes that took it. It wasn't very serious. And I loved it because it was the 
Actually, it was the major at the school that had the least number of hours required. So I had so much free time outside of class, which was awesome because then I was able to take that and actually study tons of different things I wanted to. So I did a lot of philosophy classes and some photojournalism classes um, and some religion classes. And that was really great because I I was interested in a lot of different things. I didn't want to just learn cameras and editing, which I learned as well. But it was um, a bit of a joke. But did you know then that you this was kind of the direction you wanted to go in? Yeah. I knew, one, what I didn't want to do, and also what I wasn't good at. Like, I was really bad at remembering pretty much anything that had to do with words or letters or numbers, which kind of crosses out all things math-oriented. But I was really visual. And, like, I, could, I had a really, like, it was m- much easier for me to see images and to remember them and to make sense of them. Did you take pictures? Were you a photographer? Um, I did, no. I didn't take photos, um, but I did take a lot of video. I started taking video when I was really young. I was like 12 years old when I got my first camera and loved it. It was like a really fun way to communicate. Were you like telling stories with video at that point or were you just interested in the visuals and the tech stuff? So at the beginning, it was less about visuals and tech. It was actually, um, it was it was to tell a story. I don't think I realized it at the time, but it, it was. Something happened in my family where my, my grandfather, so my, my grandfather lives in India, and he's worked in a prison um, and in a leper colony for pretty much all of his life, um, doing really, really great work, but it's also really controversial. Uh, Indian communities do not support that kind of work being done. And so when I was a kid, he went through a lot of suffering and pain and almost died because of what he was doing. And I didn't really know how to process it. Um, and I would try to tell people about it, but no one really understood it and didn't really make sense. And there was just kind of this big disconnect. And so at the time I thought, I will get a camera and go over there and like video him telling his side of the story and also hopefully video the people that have done harm to him and are against what he's doing and try to find some common ground um, and then share that with people and let people kind of see it from their perspectives and, and hopefully understand it. And that's what I set out to do. I didn't really do it very well. I was super young and had no clue what I was doing. But it was a really therapeutic process for me and my grandfather and I think for the people the people surrounding the events. How yeah. old were you at the time? Twelve. Twelve. What was your goal at being 12 and trying to do Um, something like that? I think my goal was to go and to save what had happened and then show it to people. Mm -hmm. So just documenting it. Yeah. 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 And I don't think I understood it. And I thought it would help me understand it as well. Did it? Yeah, it did. It was largely cultural and it's common. It's a lot more common than I realized. So after you did that at 12, what was your next, like, run-in with filmmaking? Um, it was probably in high school. There was always that option of, like, you can write a paper, you can make a video. Um, and so I'd always make a video, and then when it was time to go to college, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew what I didn't want to do. Um, and one thing that I did not, not want to do was make videos. So I figured, I'll study media production. Yeah. And at the beginning, I was actually going into it thinking about fiction, and like doing a lot of writing and trying to understand what acting is and how to kind of work with actors. And in about six months, I realized that it was going to be an awful way to spend my time in college because no one in college really can act. Yeah. And then I just like kind of shifted into working with real people and making documentaries without really realizing it. 
yeah, it, it was just kind of an excuse to, to meet people and to get into worlds they wouldn't normally get into and also like share stories that, that people felt needed to be shared. Hmm. How did you start like getting paid for this? Yeah, um, like in college, I made money by submitting videos to competitions and winning prize money. Really? Yeah. <laughs> that worked? Yeah, like tens of thousands of dollars. Really? Yeah. It's kind of crazy looking back now because like now I, I never win money awards <laughs> with, with film. But at the time, I would like make these short films and then I would just like Google for festivals and competitions that had to do with them and enter them and got luck- lucky a lot of times and made a lot of money actually wow. <laughs> from doing that. And so I didn't... It's like the least practical way yeah. to make money. Like not only film, but putting your film in a competition that like may, it may or may not, you know, yeah. win anything. Yeah, not only that, but like the films weren't made with that in mind. Like they were made to be made. Right. Um, and because we were excited about what we were talking about. Um, well, to be fair, I don't think that that's how anything that does well never does well from someone being like I want to make money from this Mm, you know like it always comes from a place of passion and um, honesty I think yeah yeah so did that it was great (laughs) (laughs) so so how much money did you make um I don't know exactly but I do remember there was like one that was 10 grand there was like one 10 grand one and then there was one that was like about water that was like 25 grand but I think I got second place in that one so I think I only got five grand or something like that but like as a college student this was huge like this was like it was great so I didn't actually have to work that much in college on trying to find money because I had scholarships and was like submitting these competitions and and winning winning some of them yeah wow that's like kind of badass yeah it was great so when you were like starting to kind of win those awards, were you like, oh, this is actually something I could do? This is something I'm good at? Did no. It, when did it become like a career prospect for you? No, it wasn't. It was like, wow, I'm so lucky. Like, I don't deserve this and I'm so lucky. The way I made money in college, I, I remember, but it wasn't video. I was making videos at the time, but it was, um, there was this Montessori school teacher that had a bunch of like hundreds of thousands of papers that were typed with a typewriter. Um, and she needed it to be put into a digital form on, in Word. And so for each one I like typed up, I'd get a dollar. That was maybe the last job I did for money that I was doing just for money. Hmm. What was the first job you did um, not purely for money? I think the first one was an internship at MediaStorm. I actually don't know what MediaStorm is. That's okay. Should I know? Uh, no, not necessarily. What is it? MediaStorm was a company that made really great videos for the internet um, and also some films. And they kind of rose to prominence when photographers started recording audio and making these photo stories. UNC students would very oftentimes, after they'd graduate from school, they'd go and they'd intern there. And so I did that. And what did you do there? Edited. Was that your first time editing? No. Do you like editing? Yeah. Do you like it more than shooting? No. That's like comparing playing soccer with writing. Like you can't compare them? You can, but it's just a little unfair. Yeah, yeah. I like writing more. Yeah. Than soccer. I like them both. But I'm not good at writing. But I'm good at soccer. 
When we're talking about editing and shooting, which one is writing and which one is soccer? Shooting is soccer. Okay. Right? You're better at it. Shooting is instinctual. Shooting is athletic. Shooting is suffering. Shooting is coming from the gut and coming from the heart. Editing and writing is intellectual and it's slow and it's a marathon and it's a process of critiquing, right? Like you're critiquing. You're constantly saying this is not good until it is. And shooting is creating and you're trying to keep that that space safe and you're trying to nurture and you're trying to believe in this thing that probably won't work and shouldn't but maybe it could if you just keep giving it your attention for me i feel like editing is um so much more instinctual like editing Mm. is my soccer Mm. but for you the shooting is is more is more instinctual you would say yeah maybe by instinctual i mean like the nature of the process okay like in shooting i say it's instinctual because something's happening it's happening one time and you either your gut either tells you turn the camera on and film that and you do or you don't you're reacting to it you're reacting okay and that is instinct and that's the instinct yeah i think that's what makes someone good or maybe not good at shooting right whereas with editing there's instinctual elements to it but you could spend a year doing really bad editing and still be where you were. Mm-hmm. You haven't lost, you've just lost time and money and resources, but you haven't, like the footage is all still there. But if you do that when you're shooting, those moments are gone forever. Yeah. Which is why I say editing is more, I think editing is more intellectual and I think it's more, it's it's less in the moment. Yeah, like it You is. can make the same choice and the same decision a hundred times. Yeah. And then undo it and then redo it. And as you said, it's about revisions. It's 100% about revisions, just like writing is. I mean, people think writing is this like, oh, it just flows out of me and then it's finished. But writing literally is revisions and any writer will tell you that. I totally agree. So you just did this film called When Lambs Become Lions. And first... 30 seconds of the film, I had to like check and make sure it was a documentary because I was like, this just feels so cinematic. Uh, it it doesn't really look like a documentary. How did you acquire that style? And was that a conscious decision when you were like going into this documentary of like, I'm going to shoot this like a movie? Yeah, it was conscious. It was really conscious. And I think it came from a few places. Um, I think the first place it comes from is I like watching fiction films more than I like watching documentaries. Like traditional fiction films and traditional documentaries, like I'm much more interested in seeing things unfold than I am watching like interviews unfold. Mm -hmm. But some documentaries, you are kind of watching things as they unfold. Totally, totally. Yeah, you could say that in both you're watching things unfold. I guess it's just the way in which they unfold. I think in fiction films, there's usually a tendency for things to just happen and you see them happening because you have total control and you can tell the actors to do things and then you get to see it happen. Whereas in documentary, oftentimes you don't know if something's interesting or not until you learn that information and then you go and you talk to someone who was there or knows about it and they tell you about it. And so you're, you're hearing it, but you're not really seeing it. Yeah, there's a lot of backtracking. A lot of backtracking, a lot of future tracking. Yeah. And I'm just less drawn to that. Um, it's not to say that it's like, not as good it's just when I watch documentaries like that they don't they don't um, hold my attention as much and so with this film I knew from the beginning that I wanted it to be a verite film where we were going to like find characters that are going to be going through things that we can stick with 
Um, but then on top of that, I also knew that there'd been a lot of films about this topic already made. But I hadn't seen one that felt like true verite, where we were with actual people and seeing their lives unfold and not really knowing what's going to happen and, and spending our time with them rather than just hearing them tell us about who they are and rather than having them tell us about what happened in the past or what they want to do in the future. And it carried through like from pre-production all the way to the final edits. I mean, we the editing team, we watched things like um, Heat and The Departed and Breaking Bad, these like really epic fiction stories where you have characters that might be doing something bad on the surface, but you still find yourself rooting for them and still find yourself with them and, and pulling for them and, and conflicted about how you should or shouldn't feel about um, what is right and what is wrong. So yeah, I mean, we, we were very conscious of like, we, we don't want this to feel like a documentary. We're actually okay if people question whether it is or not, because it's not about the form for us. It's about creating an experience, creating an experience that people get lost in. Um, we, we were much more interested in, in people focusing in on the characters and their arcs and where they start and where they end rather than worrying about, is this a documentary, is this a narrative? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it definitely is a documentary. It is, <laughs> yeah. It is real people. Yeah. But that's interesting, like that you're taking a documentary and it's like inspired by fiction. The form was def. I mean, like the the visual style and the the pacing, and more than anything, it's like what we didn't say. Hmm. It's like the it's like the voiceover that we didn't include. We really wanted the audience to be able to think for themselves. We didn't want to be feeding people what to think, and it reflects the experience in the field. You know, like I didn't come out of that experience with a clear conclusion as to like how to solve this issue or, or what needs to be done. I came away with a much deeper understanding of what I didn't actually know and how complicated it is and how big the gray space between these two sides are. And I don't think there's one answer. I don't think it's as clear cut as we oftentimes think it is. Um, and so what I wanted, wanted to do was to create something that mirrored that experience that I had and let people just kind of see and feel all the pieces I had felt over the last four years and make up their own mind. Yeah, it's certainly not a film that's like telling you to think or feel any type of way. Yeah. Um, usually when you're watching a documentary, the documentary is really trying to keep you with it, you know? It's like feeding you information and it's filling in any holes. And with yours, it's just like a fiction film where you don't really know who the characters are yet. You It takes you a while to kind of figure out what the relationships are to each other, like what what's actually going on. Did you decide from the beginning that you wanted to do that? Or was that something that kind of happened in post-production and editing? A bit of both. I mean, I definitely think we knew we wanted it to unfold. Um, and we got, pre- I mean, like, as we were fundraising and, like, pitching this idea around, like, we got pressure, you know? Like, there were times where people would be like, why don't at the very front of the film, like, put up a text slide that, like, gives people a sense of what the situation in Africa is with all the elephants and then like has all the characters names and like says all of their relationships to each other and then let all this amazing stuff unfold. Like if you do that first, like more people will get it and maybe, maybe more people would get it, but I think it would spoil the experience of having to think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just a reflection of this time too. Like people's attention spans, like they don't, they don't like give things enough time to really unfold. An audience. It's yeah. amazing how different places have different audiences and how communities separated, separated by space will react. Not necessarily react so differently, but prioritize different things. It's been interesting with traveling with the film over the last couple of months, going to festivals. It's been really interesting seeing how that plays out. Yeah. Do you find that like uh, when you're sitting in the theater, 
I don't know if you actually sit in the theater and watch your film over it. Do you? Um, or do so you just like leave and come back? At Tribeca, I was a little bit crazy and I did. I watched it like five times in a row, but I was also taking notes on color and sound because we were mm-hmm. doing another pass. And then there came a point, I think it was in Sheffield, which was right after Tribeca. I went to Sheffield and I sat through it again and then I went up for the q and I was so, felt so emotional in the Q&A having sat through it and feeling all of the, just feeling all of the process and then seeing that it just comes down to 76 minutes was like really hard and uh, it was an awful feeling. And I like yeah. couldn't focus on the questions. I was felt like I was like on the verge of crying the whole time. It was really bizarre. Because the film was only 76 minutes? Not because it was only 76 minutes. It's this realization of like, you did all this stuff, like you spent so much time and you worked so hard to make this thing the way you wanted to make it. and and then you show it to people and then and then they come up to you and they shake your hand and they say good work and then that's it mm-hmm. and it's like you have to remind yourself that you're not making these things for that right because it's a dark dark ending what do you what are you making them for i'm making it for the process of making it like i love the process um i don't think i think with doc if you're not enjoying the process it's like a really dangerous game to be in so let's talk about the amount of time that you spent there. Four years, you said. I didn't spend four years there. Um, I probably spent about three years shooting, and I would go for three to six months at a time. Um, right. But then I'd always I'd come back and dump footage and get space and then return. When you went back, I assume you came back to New York. Were you ever, like, afraid that you were going to miss out on things happening there? Like, did you have, like, filmmaker FOMO being here? Yeah, all the time. Um it was really, really hard, but I also spent, I also spent more time there than I did here, in a way. So that helped, and I spent a lot of time there not shooting. I spent a lot of time there just being there, um, which was really great. I don't think we could have made this film without the relationships between me and the guys. So what were you doing there when you weren't shooting? Just hanging out. Just hanging out. Yeah, I would live with them. A lot of cooking. A lot of like a lot of babysitting. So so one thing like early on that became an issue was money, right? Like I'm coming in as this yeah. kind of privileged um, outsider with a different skin color and a camera. Uh, and so their first thought was like, this guy's a millionaire. <laughs> um, and so it took about a year and a half to kind of break that idea down and to, to be like, no, I'm not a millionaire. And I'm here because I have these skills and I think if we work together, we can make something really special, but there's no point in doing this if you all don't want it as well. And so early on, like it was really, it was a long process of like, I want to make something where we just try to understand the poachers. It's like, I just want to make something where we try to understand your perspective. And is that something you see value in? And it, it sounds simple and at the beginning it felt simple, but it very quickly became really complicated. Um, and it wasn't until about a year and a half in that I think we got into an actual flow where they weren't trying to get money from me. Hmm. And it was hard. Like, there were so many times I wanted to give them money. Um, and so many times, like, the kids didn't have food or where someone, like, broke their arm and didn't have ho- money to pay the hospital. And it was this constant process of, like, trying to explain that if I give you money, it jeopardizes all of it because it looks like I'm funding what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and so that was, like, a weekly conversation. And it oftentimes, like, a lot of times it led to them just saying, forget it, we're out, we don't want to do this. Like, you obviously don't care about us. Like, if you're not going to pay for these medical bills, you obviously don't care about us. And they'd not talk to me for, like, a week or two weeks or three weeks, and I'd just be there waiting. And then eventually they'd come back and they'd be like, we're really sorry, we want to make this, we understand why you're doing it, we get that you're not rich, like, let's work together. Um, 
what kept you with it? I'm sure you had doubts. Like I'm sure you were there and you're totally like, shit, had what if they Yeah. I totally had doubts. Um I think like what kept me with it was realizing just like how misrepresented I feel like the situation there is. And also how open and honest they were being with me. Hmm. You just believed that they were gonna change their mind? Um, no. Not necessarily, but I was mm-hmm. willing to like wait it out. Yeah. Yeah. How long like what's the longest that you waited it out without the, filming something? I mean, the longest that I was in the field and I waited was three weeks. Um, there was a time where I was in the States and one of them called and said they were done and like months went by and that was a pure money thing. It was, he wanted money and I wasn't sending it. And why do you think they changed their mind? Because I, th- I think they felt me prioritizing the relationship and they realized that I cared and it wasn't about the film. Like it would, it would be this constant process of putting our relationship ahead of the film. And that would mean all kinds of things from like finding ways to use acts of services to kind of like equalize the relationships. I do a ton of babysitting. Um, they all said they wanted to learn English. I did a lot of English lessons, a lot of typewriting lessons, learning how to use a computer. So you weren't paying them obviously, but you were, you were doing them favors. Yeah, totally doing tons of favors. And it's it's not to say like I would buy food sometimes. I'd give people rides. Like it wasn't like super, the the point at which it was really clear cut was like I'm not going to give you cash to like um, to compensate you for filming you. And the other the other thing that like helped a lot is I made it clear with them the type of film we were making and let them know like I, I want to be there for everything that happens. And I think one thing that helped with that is that whenever I would be filming something and they'd feel uncomfortable about it or they'd wish it hadn't been filmed, they would tell me that and we'd delete the footage together. Hmm. And so they they had this they had a sense of control over what we were doing and it felt like a collaboration because they were able to do that. Um, Did they ever delete something that you... Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are two characters. Like, there was a... There's the buyer, the ivory buyer, who was mm-hmm. a character in the film. And we, I showed him some of the film and he said, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. And so we, like, totally took him out. How did you feel about that? Um... I mean, it was frustrating. It was really frustrating, but I, like, get it. Like, this is real life. And, like, I'd rather do that and not have negative consequences for you and your life than, like, have the film be a little bit better and you get screwed over. Yeah. Like, that's kind of a no-brainer. And it's also, like, going in, I knew that was a possibility for all of them. And there was another woman we followed for three, two and a half years who we took out. That was more of an editorial decision. That was less of a, like, she wanted to be out. That was a, like, there were other reasons for that. That's a hard editorial decision to make, though, when you invest that much time. Really hard. Yeah. Yeah, that's why it's so useful to have editors that you trust. Yeah. So I heard you talking in, like, a Q&A about this film. And you said that you, I mean, you mentioned that you spent a lot of time in Kenya just, like, hanging out. Yeah. And building trust with these people and a relationship. And you also said that, like, part of building trust with them and part of making them comfortable around you and around a camera was just like filming like mundane things that you knew that you weren't going to use. I've never heard of anyone doing that before. I'm wondering if that was your idea, if that kind of like came about in the moment or was something that you did before. Where did that idea come from? It's like the idea, it's just like the idea of practice, both for me and for them. Like it was getting, it was getting all of us used to this idea that there's this camera with us and it's going to be with us and it's not going anywhere and you don't have to fear it mm-hmm. and it's, it's not good and it's not bad it's just there and so by shooting everything especially things that weren't important they weren't thinking about what I was looking for 
they weren't thinking like, oh, John wants to film all things related to poaching or John wants to film all things related to our relationships with our families or John wants to see all things related with our relationships with each other. It was like, John is just filming everything. He's interested in everything. And so then when something would happen that like piqued my interest, I wouldn't act differently. I'd still be doing what I was doing normally. And so it wouldn't change their behavior. So they wouldn't act differently because I'm sure to exactly. some extent their behavior mirrors your behavior. Totally. Yeah. So it was a bit of that. And it was also like being with them without a camera was really impactful. Like there's a scene where Asan gets in a big fight with his wife. And that was the fourth time I'd seen them get in a fight. But it was the first time I had a camera for it. So I'd been in their house with them for three other fights. And so they they were used to me being there when they fought. It wasn't a, a strange thing. And so when I started filming that on the fourth one, it, I don't I didn't even feel like they realized I was there because mm-hmm. I was just I'm always there. Yeah, um, like a fly on the wall. At yeah, kind of. Yeah. Like the camera changes things. Like I'm someone who believes that the camera changes things. There's nothing you can do about that because yeah. it's just weird. Um, but I do think there are ways you can take steps to drastically reduce the weirdness of it. But but then you end up with all of this footage that, I mean, do you just like literally delete it that day? You're like, I'm, there's no way I'm going to use this. Or have you actually gone back and used some of that like nothing footage? Yeah, some of that nothing footage turns into something footage. It also like helped me get a sense of the place. Um, and a lot of the transitional shots came from kind of marinating in the place and spending a lot of time just like sitting in it without a camera and then also just sitting in it shooting things that had nothing to do with anything but just like felt like a reflection of the community and the place and the spirit and the energy. Is that like advice you'd give to someone else who was working on a similar project? Shoot everything and don't throw anything away? Depends on the project. Right. Um, I think if the resources that are there to shoot more like very little bad can come of it mm-hmm. if you have the resources to look through it all and edit it. I guess what I'm asking is like, would you do it again if you could? Would I make when lambs become lions the same way? Would you do the same approach where you're shooting everything, like shooting all the time? Yeah. I think for this film, it was really important for the characters. And also there was a sense, I think, for, I mean, I came back with over 700 hours of footage. And I think a part of the reason that number is so high is like an insecurity on my end as a director, as a first time director making a film, not really knowing what I'm doing, kind of figuring out as I'm going. And so I think, you know, I think one thing I would do when I felt worried about doing the wrong thing is I, rather than working smart, I would just work really hard mm-hmm. and it would kind of ease some of that insecurity away. It's like, oh, you worked really hard today. So like something you probably did something right yeah there's at least one thing we can use yeah 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 do you feel like now that you've made this film you can maybe self-edit a bit more next time um because you didn't really know what you were doing yeah in a way i didn't and and you just worked really hard yeah and relied on that yeah i was um i was really naive in an empowering way it was very helpful I had no idea how hard it would be or what I was getting into. And it's left me now more insecure. Like, I think I have more doubt about myself as a filmmaker now than I did before starting this last film. Why? Because I know. I know now what it takes. And I know how hard it is. And that's scary. So When Lambs Become Lions was your first feature-length documentary, correct? Yeah. Do Do you like it? Do you like the way it turned out? Um, no, that's a really good question. 
I don't feel like anyone ever asked filmmakers that. Yeah, it's a question that like, I think people are scared to ask. The process of finishing this film, and I think most films for filmmakers, is a depressing process. Um, It feels a little bit like getting a divorce. You've kind of poured yourself and all of your heart and your energy and your blood and your sweat and your tears into this thing, and then all of a sudden one day it goes from being yours to being everybody else's. And they can do and say and feel however they want about it, and you're no longer a part of it. And that's a really hard thing, especially the first time, I'm realizing. Um, so there's, it's kind of been like this depressing kind of morning process, letting go of the project. But when I do watch it, I'm really, really proud of what we made. I don't have any regrets about it. I don't think there's anything I would change about it. And that's, like, I feel really lucky to have, to have that and to have, gotten, to have gotten a team together that's talented enough to, to exceed that standard. Because I'm never happy. <laughs> I'm never, like, I'm never really happy with what I make. I'm always um, pretty down on it. And sometimes till the end, but this is one where I, at the end I was um, really, really proud and thankful. Hmm. Do you feel like you like your work? Like sometimes when I look back at stuff that I've done like a long time ago, I'm just like, I don't like like my own hmm. stuff, hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of people making any kind of creative work, it takes them a while to actually like like what they're doing. Yeah. Like the actual work that they're putting out into the world. Yeah. Was that ever like a process for you of like learning to as you got better at this, like, like your own work. This is actually reminding me of, um, I recently did this thing where the, this, there was this event and they wanted me to show all of my work, like everything I've done from the, like the very first thing they wanted like a filmmaker to come and talk about just like their process as a whole. And they're like, we want you to do it. And we want you to show everything. Like the very first thing you've done all the way up to your latest thing. But it was incredibly like, painful and rewarding to watch that early stuff mm-hmm. it was really interesting to both see like similarities of like what I was drawn to you know 10-15 years ago to what I am now but also just like seeing how much it's changed it was interesting it felt naked yeah in a way totally yeah yeah but I think it's important I think it's good I think it's like really good for people to see work that they really admire but also see like where the pers- people that made it have come from because it's a long process um And like you were saying, it's rewriting. Yeah, it's revision. A lot of revisions. Thanks so much for listening. Rough Cut is hosted and produced by me, Jenny Butler. Our theme music is by Zach Wright. Our design is by Adam Glucksman. The podcast is co-produced by Sky Dillard Robbins, who's the founder and executive director of the Video Consortium. And all of our guests and the people who made this podcast happen are in the Video Consortium. And for the filmmakers who are listening, we'd love for you to check us out and maybe join. So the Video Consortium is a creative community of the world's top nonfiction filmmakers and video journalists. We're all based throughout the world, but we have chapters in New York, L.A., San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Paris, and a bunch more coming soon. You can visit us at videoconsortium.com and find us on all of the social things. And if you're in one of our chapter cities and want to attend an upcoming monthly gathering, which are secret parties slash screenings of sorts, just shoot us an email, info at videoconsortium.com. And if you want to learn more about Rough Cut, you can visit roughcutpodcast.com and maybe shoot us a note. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.